0: All right, we are officially live and people are joining. So it's showing 17 attendees, 19, so I'll allow people to give people a few minutes to jump on and 38, 42. So as people jump on, we will get ourselves live on YouTube. Welcome everybody, we're just waiting for people to join. If you guys want, in the meantime, you'll see in the chat settings, which you should be able to access, if you just want to type in where you are, there's a part of it that makes it feel like we're all in the same world right now, all dealing with the same thing, but I think people in New York, Italy are dealing with a little more than some others, so I'd be curious to know where people are tuning in from, so if you want to just type that in the box would be great.
1: I can't tell you that. New York, the sky is blue. There are birds chirping. The trees and all of nature seems oblivious to what we're going through, just for the record. <laughs> so I
0: don't know if you guys see in the chat, but you got Long Island, Canada, New York, California, North Carolina, Israel, France, Monaco, Florida, Montreal, Australia, New York, Jerusalem. So we got uh, the word got out. Modern day technology, it's pretty Pretty unbelievable. A, uh, a request to Haiti on Friday morning, a conversation an hour later with Simon, and uh, <laughs> there you go. And 48 hours later, we have hundreds of people tuning in. So we're at 90 attendees, expecting a little bit more, so I'll just give it a little bit longer before we hop on, and we'll get this. Uh...
1: I see, Ellie, you're very honest. Usually, if 90, they say it's 900. 900 is 9,000. You're uh, actually <laughs> brutally honest, which is good. I want to... Yeah,
0: <laughs> one of my problems. <laughs> Most of my problems start there, but
1: yeah. All right. Hey, that's interesting, right? That nature is so oblivious, both of pain and joy for them.
2: Yes. <laughs> And it's now burgeoning and really shining through. And it's beautiful to look outside.
0: What's, um, Heidi, have you heard of Rabbi Simmon before Friday?
2: I have not. And I'm sad, but I'm glad (laughs) that you made the Shidduch.
0: But Rabbi Rabbi Simmon, you've heard of... You've heard of Haiti, right? You've heard of her work.
1: I said, as a matter of fact, I thought we had met, but then I realized it was a different Haiti with a different name. i, uh-huh. I confused, but <laughs> anyway, all souls are connected from the beginning of time. So just a matter of uh, reacquainting.
2: <laughs> Hello again. <laughs>
1: yeah. you know, we've been through a lot, 3,800 years. We've been through a lot.
2: Indeed. You know, they say how do you make matzo balls? You start with three thousand years of suffering. Then you add a little matzo meal and an egg <laughs> and you mix it up. You'll have mat- you'll have matzo balls. And these <laughs>
1: modern chefs, they come and they think they can just stick it together. They, <laughs> exactly.
2: they gotta pay you
1: dues. Yeah.
3: <laughs> exactly right.
1: You know that story since we're waiting, can I share something? Go ahead, yeah. Pavarotti, the, the, the great opera singer, once did a rendition of Psalms 23, The Lord is My Shepherd. And it was beautiful. The whole place gave him a standing ovation. Then an old Jew got up and he did the same thing. Hashem la Hashem roi, Hashem roi in Hebrew. He did it like a, you know, old Jew can do it. And the whole crowd began to cry. So Pavarotti asked him afterwards, he says, why did they give me a standing ovation? And you, they cried. So the Jew answered with a broken English, he said, because you may know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. Oh,
2: <laughs> oh that's, a, that's very moving. I know the shepherd. Oh.
0: All right, let's get started. We have uh, a little over 100 people, 110 because you like when I'm precise. So I'll tell you uh, what inspires me most about both of you. There's something uniform, which is why I thought a conversation would be great, is that you both have a very youthful energy. So Rabbi Simon, every time I've gotten to know him only recently, I've heard his name for years, but we've gotten to know each other recently. And I leave phone calls with him energized. He tells me that there's a spiritual war going on. We have to do something, this motivation, this excitement. Um, there's, there's a youthfulness to it. And yesterday I was reading in your book, yesterday, Towards a Meaningful Life, I was reading that section about youth, Rabbi Simon, where you spoke about the, the importance of harnessing the, the youthful energy. And then Haiti, I, I don't really have to explain it, but I'll give a story anyway. I think that people who see you see why I say there's a youthful energy. But when, um, so uh, my wife and I saw Haiti in 2016, a little bit before uh, we got engaged, and it certainly helped and I can't really explain. It certainly helped to make the decision to say yes. When she asked me <laughs> or for her to say yes, when I, when I asked her, it was, a, it was very transformative. And, uh, Heidi, you talk about level one, two and three learning and level three learning is the transformation. You don't even know what you learned, but you know, that you're, you're changed. And that was that experience. And, um, when, When my wife and I finished that two days, which seemed to go, you know, it starts nine in the morning till six in the afternoon with a short 45 minute break for lunch. And it just goes like this, the two days, it's an amazing spiritual experience for those who've been through Hades workshops. And uh, we said, we're going to do this again, but we didn't know when. And then about six or eight months ago, I think it was, we got an email that uh, your husband Yumi was retiring so I showed it to Frady and I said, Haiti hey, may be next, so why don't we go soon? <laughs> so I, I reached out to your assistant and we booked, a, uh, we, we booked a session. We sat down, I told you the story of why we booked. You asked how we were doing and I, I think Frady said, you can't take it from me, it's better when the wife says it. She said that we've never been in a better place. So you looked a little surprised and you said, it's, it's not every day I get people come to me. <laughs> for a relationship help want a great place. So I explained to you why, that I saw your husband's email and I was nervous that you would retire soon. So you said to me, well, you don't have to worry too much. The next five years, I'll continue to be doing this. And then after that, I have 10 years of fashion planned because there are not, not enough models in their 80s.
3: <laughs> so what I've
0: thought about also in terms of youth is the way the – virus is not affecting the youth and i don't know. maybe i say this a little tongue-in-cheek but i i just wonder if we spoke about any other group of people in the way we're speaking about people over 60 now um can i can i ask you guys both that question is it when you hear it almost feels to me like they're talking about people who don't watch the news like we we only have to stay at home because of the old people don't kill your grandparents i mean not everyone over 60 you know is they're functioning members of society. Is it offensive when you hear that? Is that? do you, Does it register at all when you hear people talking about um, the the way older people are the ones being affected by the virus? And then when there's someone younger, it was like, oh, maybe we should take it seriously. There's someone 35. I don't think if kids were getting sick, we would say that. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on that, Haitian and Sina?
2: Um, I hadn't been thinking about it. Uh... I am enjoying very much elderhood. You know, there's childhood, adulthood, elderhood, and I am lucky to be in elderhood and I'm enjoying very much this phase of life. And I have not really thought about being pushed aside. I haven't felt that way. Um, I just know, yes, I think people who are in elderhood Maybe more vulnerable to this particular virus and people who have underlying health conditions may be more vulnerable, but I don't know. I, I, I haven't felt w- what you were describing, you know, I, got I, wasn't, you.
0: The, I mean, specifically to the way they're talking about coronavirus, not in general. Right, right, right,
2: no, right. Yeah. I, I don't know. I haven't, uh, Maybe, maybe I don't hear, you know. Maybe okay. If you not, don't
0: feel the need to defend yeah, yourself, I'm not I'm going not to. I'm sensitive
2: to that or something. Okay. You no, know, I haven't, uh, haven't felt it.
0: Roy Simon, have you had a different experience with that? Maybe you don't watch the news and you don't see the way they're talking about anyone over 60.
1: No, I do see. <laughs> and uh, I don't feel like I'm in the 60s. I feel like I'm 17 years old, to be very honest.
0: That's the way I feel.
1: I'm in complete denial. That's how I feel about you. i will tell you remember when ronald reagan had that famous debate with walter mondale and everyone was talking that reagan was the oldest president and going into a second term he may be senile etc so he came up with that line that clinched the election for him he turned to mondale and says i made a very deliberate decision that i am not going to take advantage of your youth and inexperience in this (laughs) in this uh election
0: Right. I'm not going to make age a focus of the election. I'm not going to take (laughs) advantage.
1: Honestly, I I see it. Look, it makes sense. People who are older and especially people who have their bodies are not as uh, powerful in the immune system. I haven't felt it. Just for the record, I did have the, I didn't uh, um, test it because my doctor said I didn't need to, but three weeks ago I contracted the symptoms and I could say since yesterday, it's all gone. Even the taste and smell that I lost is gone. So, I feel invulnerable. I feel like, (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm quarantined. I'm not going out. I'm being quite prudent because I don't know how long the virus incubates. But to be honest, it's very fascinating to me. You know, I feel that the the society in general over-worships youth in in a sense, almost like externally, you know, look at sports or other things. And uh, though being young and energetic and idealistic is great, but Really, the, the, real, the real mystery is how do you combine the seasoning and experience of adult life with the youthful vigor and exuberance of a young person? I think that is the, real, the key secret to real life. And I've met people, not many, but they have the sparkle in their eyes, even when they're 90 or 95 years old. You know, well, how just, do you do oh,
0: that? How do you combine the two?
2: Well, my husband's father, David, he lived to be 106. And he was vibrant. He was with it. He was an amazing human being. And somebody at his birthday said when he was 106, David, aren't you afraid to die? You're 106. So he looked at him smiling. He says, nah, not many people die at 100.
0: (laughs) Right. That's true. The statistics are in his
3: favor. right.
1: That's right. I, I would say, I would say, uh, you know, I'll just honor my Rebbe, my teacher, my mentor, who's 118th birthday is today. He passed away 25 years ago, Rabbi Menachem Noshnes, and the Rebbe. Today's his actual birthday, so I think it's a good to pass a gesture, someone that I have such a debt of gratitude. But I remember when he turned 70, he actually gave a talk on this day. When he turned 70, we're talking about 1972, um, long before... Many wars were fought, and he said something fascinating. He says he's receiving letters encouraging him to retire at this point. You accomplished so much, time to retire. And he gave the whole talk hours long and said, Age is not determined by passport, it's determined by spirit. And the soul never ages, it only gets more younger and more powerful as it goes. The body may age, and the concept of retirement was so um so abhorrent to him because a human being was created to produce so fine we produce differently when we're 10 or 20 30 40 and then 90 or 80 70 but it was a very uh, the message to me was not that we have to be workaholics but when you're passionate and you really have a mission in life when does that mission exactly begin to weaken if you're driven i really feel and i've said this to you ellie and i say it here i feel that maybe this may be the definitive event of our lives And if we weren't trained for this, to rise to the occasion and to show uh, a a, a certain morale and courage, you know, we know we have to be prudent. We understand the health issues. This is the time. There's an expression named If not now, when? So I really feel that's why I'm uh, honored to be with you, Haiti, and with Ellie, and doing these programs, as many as possible. I've been doing it all over because I really feel those of us that that have that sense of mission and uh, that does not change because we have a battle on our hands or because we have a setback or we have quarantined or the other issues. On the contrary, I think we need spirit more than ever. And as spiritually, and as I'm sorry, socially distant or physically distant we are, we have to be even more spiritually closer than ever. Yeah, that's, that's why I've left off- That's how you each, stay
0: young. On each conversation with you, that's why I've left off, like the, the conversations during the- during this uh, pandemic, right. it's left like, okay, I have to do something. If I'm feeling in a mode of positivity, then I have to um, serve. So we call the event facing the unknown. And the, the title came from a couple of di- not the, the idea for the event came from a couple of different things. So Haiti sends out emails um, every so often, and I'm on her, I'm on her list. So mid March, she sent an email, and I was really curious what is her, you know, even though she's a relationship expert, when you sit with her, you want to hear her take on other, th- other aspects of life. And I was curious when I saw that email, what she would say about the coronavirus. And mostly in that email, she compared it to, a, to the Sabbath and an opportunity to look inward. And um, uh, I, there was a story about the, uh, a South American tribe, I think you put in there, that would travel. And then they would stop every so often. And when they were asked why they would stop while they were traveling, they say for our souls to catch up to us. And that was, there was a very, um, an optimistic perspective in that email. And then I think it was Thursday, you sent out another email titled Coping vs. Living. And the tone I took it, it was slightly different. There was a little bit more of, um, of a heaviness, something that there was, it was clear that the, the um, it was affecting you in a different way. And uh, you put a line in there that said, we never, we never know but to not know the way we do not know now that we've we have never, never known.
2: We've never not known. Right. We've
0: never not known. We've never, we have never. Not known
2: just the way we don't know now.
0: Right. Like there's a not knowing that's at a very intense level <laughs> right. now. Right. And so what, what shifted in those, in those three, was there, was there something specific? Was it the length of time that this has been going on? I mean, what, did I did I accurately describe the
2: right, changed, right, the right. that was created by your but email? I, I was talking to uh, Rabbi Simon before about being very much in touch now with my parents during their hiding. Uh, they were caught uh, from hiding and put in a camp, but before that, they were in a cellar in the south of France. And You're talking I, World War Two, World War Two, and I thought about them in hiding in a space that is tiny without ever going out, without ever knowing what really is tomorrow about. And I think what has begun to really be a very visceral experience for me is their war experience. I mean, I've known about it, but just being in quarantine and the other day, Yumi and I went to our a courtyard and it's beautiful it's springtime and when we came back from the courtyard we got a letter that said the courtyard from now on will be closed oh, wow. and so what I began to f- feel really is them in their situation where in the mid 30s life started to be smaller and smaller and smaller they went out with a yellow star and then they didn't go out anymore and then they ran away and then they were caught meaning i i it's not the experience here at all and yet with every closure i feel them more strongly their their courage their spirit their transcendence the fact that they came out the way they did people fully alive, choosing joy. And at the same time, I can also experience what that must have been like. I don't think I can experience, but certainly much closer than ever before. And so I dedicated that particular broadcast to my mother uh, with that idea that she understood the difference between coping and living and and decided she wasn't going to cope with the situation she was going to live inside of it. during the situation
0: right the, the the email also had a positivity but it had an energy of working towards a positivity versus in the first email there was a like a perspective shift and to say hey we're doing something else here, and it's like okay great you know last week we held an event called let go and let god and in that event um our my thoughts were to share some ideas right almost to engage people's minds to a degree and now, I mean, I can say from my own week and just seeing more and more people sick and my parents live in New York and I have a relative which passed 58 years old and left nine kids and it's touching much closer, the, the coronavirus. And uh, I felt like today is almost more about engaging people's hearts. And that's why I said facing the unknown, like you're, it's like, we do not know, right, is that. And then the next thing that led to me, thinking about the, the event and reaching out to you was there was a, there's an Israeli artist Yishai Rebo who wrote a song called uh, Keter Melucha, right? Like the Corona play on the word crown, but the crown of uh, Mm -mm. Um, the crown of like God crowning himself. And in it, the refrain was like almost asking God, what do you want us to learn from this? What do you want us to learn from, from it? And I thought the song was so beautiful in the sense that it left us in the question right there. It wasn't looking to give us a solution or an answer. It was just like being able to really feel the unknown and the question that they're experiencing. And then it reminded me of what Rabbi Simmons said on last week's call. He said uh, the idea of I think, right? That between two things, there's a space of nothing. And uh, right now we're in that space and that, you know, I have a a friend in recovery who says, uh, I know when one door opens, another door, when one door closes, another door opens, but these hallways are a bitch. So (laughs) so this hallway is, uh, it's getting there. I feel like another few weeks of this and the Dalai Lama is going to need to call a psychiatrist. (laughs) Now, uh, Rabbi Simmon, I I invited uh, a singer, Elior Itzkowicz. Uh, Elior, if you want to turn on your camera so people can uh, see you. Elior sang at... uh, the wedding of my wife and I. Beautiful voice. Zoom doesn't allow for the same experience. But I I reached out to Elior and I said, hey, you know, you're in Israel. I'm in Miami. Simmon's in New York. Haiti's in Washington. But we can all be on Zoom at the same time. I know it's a little bit later for you than it is for us. But would you sing a song? And he sent me a new album that he put out. And there was a beautiful um, song, one of the Psalms. And Rabbi Simmons, if you could... I mentioned it to you before, the, the Malote is going to sing. Just explain what it is, and it also has that same word in there, that word of ayin, so that we can explain it, and then we can listen to Elior sing it. It, I think, would be a, a, no better way to engage people's heart than through music.
1: Well, it's a very classic psalm, and, of course, psalms were composed by King David, who himself went through a lot of distress in his own personal life, and he documented it in a book called Psalms. 150 different psalms and he actually asked God would you make my psalms the songs that people will sing throughout history when they are in distress so the book of psalms has become stands out from all other books of the bible as one that the Jewish people have always turned to in in times of distress in times of difficulties during the high holidays whenever there was a need so to speak to pierce the heavens so this particular psalm uh, is king david speaking about he's calling for help to call for help and he says the words yove Ezri." from where from whence will come my help he says i raise my eyes to heaven i'm sorry not to heaven to the mountains to the hills and i wonder from whence from where will come my help you know we all can identify with that there are times when the things are so so lost the only place you can look to is heaven the mountains, nature. You just say, where is it going to come from? And then he responds, my help will come from God. But the interesting word that you, Ellie, emphasized is ma'ayan. Ma'ayan means from where. But the word ayin also can be read not as a question from where, but actually as a statement. It's coming from an unknown place that in Hebrew, there would be the word yesh would be an identity, you know, a paradigm that I'm familiar with. And ayin would be, An unknown reality. And as you pointed out, we discussed last week, between every two paradigms for them to really be a new paradigm, you always have to go through some void or some vacuum. If not, you just have what you had. You just have a continuation of the past. You need to shed a layer of skin in order to assume a new layer. Look, a caterpillar has to go through the chrysalis to become a beautiful butterfly. And it's a metamorphosis. But as you said, the iron is a very uncomfortable place because precisely it's, it's stripping us from our comfort zones and our security blankets and everything we know to be real and routine. Suddenly that's gone. I mean, no better way to describe it. I've met, I don't believe in history. You have 8 billion people who are all collectively in that place. I don't think we even know that we don't know to the extent of how unfathomable. Just the exponential effect of this complete stop. It's really a stop. I don't think there's a sector of society that hasn't been impacted. So very appropriate song to sing this psalm. And uh, maybe we can talk about it some more afterwards. Once the, is you know, there was the, one of the great Hasidic Rebbes said, when you have a question and there's no answer, you tell a story. And if that doesn't work, you sing a song. <laughs> so the truth is songs and stories can capture the unknown in ways that words cannot. So um, we look forward to hear it and then we'll discuss. But I think that ma'ayan as is a tremendous concept. That your 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 security and your strength comes from an unknown reality, and that's something that itself is very uncomfortable for many people because they want. An, I know my reality. I know my job. I know my commute. I know my summer plans. I know which movie I'm going to, which sport games I'm going to. All that's gone. So all you have is ayin right now, the unknown being your salvation. So let's hear the song.
0: Elior, you're
3: up. Uh, I pray, I and I that God help us all over the world. Me niyavu azri azri שומר ישראל, השם שומריך, השם צליחה, על יד ימיניך. יום אמר השמש לא יקטה, וירח בלילה. Hashemish God guides for you
0: Yes, you, Elior. I I found I found Elior on YouTube. I was looking for someone who would sing at uh, at our wedding and I scoured YouTube and I bumped into him singing a song. Elior was a song Simenica Kachotam." That song. I bumped into it and I said I knew uh I knew that's a song I wanted to walk down to walk down the aisle to and I knew I wanted him singing. So
2: Mm. That's
0: beautiful, everyone I think people. Thank you,
2: your
0: Why you have a beautiful
1: voice? There's a lot of Eli, uh, should yeah. I should I read the English translation of the song?
0: Go ahead. Sure. What? Just one thing before. So I was um I was on a um an online meditation last week. I was I joined it, and the host did something very interesting. And of Daniel Katz, some people may know him, but he um he engaged people in the chat in the sense, you know, sometimes Zoom, you have 150, 200, 300, I think there were 400 people on the meditation. It's hard to um, have everyone speaking and for it to be uh, meaningful in any way. But what he did is he had people put in the chat, like some some of what they're dealing with. So I thought in terms of the unknown, right, we have different unknowns right now. You know, I'm curious, as a business owner, what is 30 or 40 percent unemployment look like? And even if my business survives and I sell cell phones and people still need cell phones and maybe especially need cell phones in this time, well, what happens when you have 30 or 40% unemployment? Can people still afford it? What, are the streets safe? I mean, there's so many unknown, right? As an example, one is a, a lot. I, I sign on obsessively in the communities that I'm a part of to see who passed. And that's another huge unknown for me. And I'd be curious within the chats if people can share some of the specifics that they're dealing with. I think it'll help both for Haiti, Sim, and myself to be able to navigate, um, to uh, be able to navigate, not navigate. I don't think we're trying to give anyone any advice. There's no advice. There's just a, a sense that we can come together as a community and, um, like I said, engage people's hearts, engage people's souls. So, But understanding where they're at versus, you know, just knowing there's 142 people tuning in, but we have no idea what they're going through. So if you guys want to um, put in, in the uh, chat section some of that, then while uh, Ravi Simon, while you're explaining, I think it could be helpful.
1: I was just going to read the psalm because I feel that um, using an expression that is a, also comes from the mystics, they say, when you're tied above, you don't fall below. Um, I'll just say this. First, I just want to say from my heart to everyone on this uh, call, on this webinar, and of course to you, Ellie, and to Heidi, Um, we cannot forget that uh, we're human beings and we are all in some ways fragile and vulnerable, never as as has been like today. And uh, I want to just extend from my heart all the prayers and blessings that um, everyone that needs healing should have complete healing or for lame in the fullest possible way and those of us that the rest of us should be protected and above okay. all healing also psychologically emotionally and spiritually which we know can be even more devastating than physical challenges because if fear and even panic and the unknown uncertainties can eat away at a person, so I just wanted to say that, just to just get that in.
2: Amen, um, in. amen to that. Yeah.
1: And I was going to read the psalm really was because we want to know what the shepherd, we want to know the shepherd. It's a short psalm, so let me, just, um, let me just translate it. A song for a sense, I shall raise my eyes to the mountains. From where will my help come? And remember, as I said, from where can be seen a question, it could be some fr- as a statement. Yes, it comes from an unknown. My help is from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to falter. Your gardener, your guardian will not slumber. Behold the guardian of Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your guardian is your guardian. The Lord is your shadow. He is by your right hand by day, the sun will not smite you, nor will the moon at night. The Lord will guard you from all evil. He will guard your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and you're coming in from now and to eternity. Interesting going in and going out, meaning from our homes and so on. So I thought appropriate to uh, just uh, read that and we can interpret it, but I won't say one thing and i course to hear from, of course from uh, Haiti. Um, those of us that have traversed and traveled in the world of the unknown, frankly have it a little easier now because unknown was always comfortable to us. These are either people who've suffered a lot and they've seen the darkest of dark and they've seen and been humbled and realized they know very little. Or some of us who came to it either through grace or just a certain deeper awareness that what we know about life and we know about ourselves, what we know about existence is nothing, is a little tip of the iceberg. If you compare it to the vast universe and to the vast cosmos, you know, think of it in this context. Do you know how many trillion cells a human body has? They say up to 75 trillion cells. It's the only thing larger than the US deficit, which of course is gonna go up now. 75 trillion cells. It's impossible to even wrap your head around it and then add the universe to it. So the idea of being, of knowing that the unknown is actually more real than the known, makes it a lot easier. doesn't mean that we still have challenges. But it gives you access to a deeper strength, which a lot of people don't relate to. They think the unknown, oh, that's not where I want to go. I'm, I need control. Control is the big word. But we all know love, truth, God, soul, eternity, immortality. All these things are not in our control. And there's a certain uh, surrender to that unknown reality. And I think that my Yahweh Ezri, that was just sung, is recognizing that. That's why he says it. Why doesn't he just say, God, you're my protector? Why does he begin with that? Because it's not just God, it's the unknown God. Because the known God, we maybe we knew well two, three months ago, a God that allowed everything to run smoothly. Now we're dealing with an unknown God. We have no idea what the mysterious plan is. So you could either be bitter and angry and frustrated about it, or you realize, you know what? I'm a little person in a very long narrative. I just want to quote one thing from Job. This always touched me. The whole book of Job, it's all about human suffering, where he dialogued with God. Why would you do this to me? The big question, why do righteous people suffer? And there's one sentence there that always, and I'm thinking about it recently. You know what God answers to Job? One of the answers he says to him, you ask me this question. You can even see God's answering with anguish. You ask me this question, why they're suffering. Do you ever were you there when I created heaven and earth? That you know the plan, that you asking me that question? I, I'll rephrase it. You ask me why there's suffering. Did you ask me why there's joy? You ask me why there's death. Did you ask me why there's life? You asked me there's illness, but did you ask me why there's birth? Why there's so many blessings in life? You know, maybe it's all tied together. We never ask when things are going well. When things are not going well, hey, what's going on? My plan has been upended. I'm disrupted. Now, I'm not defending God. I'm just suggesting that life is more mystery than the knowable. And when you realize that, the mystery of joy and the mystery of pain and the mystery of happiness and the mystery of sadness and the mystery of life and the mystery of death. And at the end of the day, there's a a, a whole domain that is beyond us. And when you recognize that, interestingly, you can begin to see God. I'll talk about that a little later, but I don't want to... I really want to hear Haiti. I know. I know what I have to say. I want to hear what uh, the, the, the <laughs> well, wise, the wise, time. the wise sages of our generation.
2: <laughs> the psalm brought me to a story that I'd like to tell, because I learned from that story around being able to face the unknown in terror, and yet see the blessing that could be inside of that unknown. My parents left Antwerp, Belgium, trying to get to Switzerland. They had false passports. And on the train, my mother realized she forgot her false passport on the dining room table because she was so uncomfortable with the lie that that passport was about her. And so here she is running away. She doesn't have papers. And she entered at first into absolute terror. And then she took a breath and she told me at the deepest level of my soul, I understood this unknown situation is a blessing. And what I was gonna do from that moment on is I'm gonna review this is a blessing I know nothing about, but it's a blessing. And so she basically without papers made her way, got caught and finally actually escaped. But when she got to Switzerland, her sister was there and her sister welcomed her because all the refugees in Switzerland would hear about the news of new refugees arriving. And there my aunt Hadassah finds out, Miri, my mother has arrived. And the first sentence she said to her was, the book you left on the dining room table, I got to read all the way to Switzerland. And so what she was saying is, that book, the passport, got her all the way to to Switzerland. So my mother, at some level, in the unknown, held a blessing that she couldn't know what it was, but it was saving her sister. She saved her sister the whole suffering of the war, because with that passport, her sister arrived right away to Switzerland. The part that always touches me is, "Me ein yavo esri," that knowing that there is Ezri, so my mother knew there is, in this ein, in this nothing, in this unknown, in this terrifying reality, there is a blessing, I am going to sit inside of that blessing. That was such a lesson, and I think right now. The blessing is unknown, but it's already existing because we found out that we can stop everything. We can even stop air travel and we can stop we can stop things. If we decide life is worth it, well, with that power, there's so many things we're going to be able to do to save lives afterwards. We now know what we're capable of. The blessing is already there. Even if we don't know exactly, holding it as a blessing already makes it very different.
0: Eddie, one of the things uh, I was thinking about, because we did our work together in January, was so when I went back, was what you spoke about with the, the U theory. So I don't know if you noticed some of the questions people are messaging. The U theory by Otto Sharmer.
2: Wow, oh, the youth theory. Yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. So a lot of the
0: questions that are coming in are actually about relationships because, I mean, living at home with someone and being quarantined with them, it's hard if you don't like them and get along with them. And,
2: um,
0: so we have, we've done some of that work. I was thinking with the U theory, when you explained it, there were two aspects to it. One was, and I'll share and hopefully Freddie will be okay um, with, uh, with me sharing, but she's used to it at this point. So when, when we sat down, the only way I've, I've described, I've told, told couples, many couples, that you have to go see Haiti. It's amazing. Her two-day private workshop is transformational. And he said, well, what is it? And I said, I don't, I don't have a good word for it. Maybe you have a better explanation. The best I've come, I said, it's a spiritual journey of sorts that you go with on your couple. And she guides you as a couple. She doesn't really say anything, in the sense of giving you any insight who's right or wrong in the relationship. She just comes along as a guide on a journey that she takes you and it takes you on and it's transformative. And beyond being transformative, I've never felt that I understood another person so well and I've never felt so understood after. That was the way um, I described it. But one of the things you said is in this last time, you explained that the youth theory that as we're going through a minor nuisance... That comes up, right? So I brought up some. I think we called it the neighborhood of money, right? And some some stuff around there is. You said that deep down there's something um, much more profound. But I'm going to need to allow someone to sit with me in the not knowingness of whatever it is, like that deep belief. And I believe that. The, and you said eventually you'll come to a very profound realization. And then only from there will there be a future calling. So I believe it was something along the lines of I don't want to be alone was something behind that, right? That irritation or disagreement between us was this found belief and that as I sat, I was not worthy of love without being able to provide. And that was a belief that somehow got planted into me at who knows what age. And you were there and Frady was there to kind of guide me and be in that space of, and you said it specifically of not knowing this, that there's this gap. And I kept repeating the words. I recall before I got to that reality, you asked us to speak in very succinct statements. I kept saying, I don't know. And you said, watch, look at her, like watch Frady be there with you in the not knowing. And then right. you spoke also about the concept of the U theory, how we need to go down to that bottom, that pain, and then right after that, the next statement after we fully embrace the pain will be the future calling. So I get my question is, is do you see that theory applying to the collective just like it did, does to the individual? Mm-hmm. And can you also explain the youth theory by Otto Sharma mm-hmm. to
2: mm-hmm.
0: everyone else? Yeah,
2: before I go into the youth theory, I just wanna say that what I teach couples is how to be fully present to each other, so Freddie learned how to be really fully present to you, so you could go down the you, really be there with her interest, her spirit, her love for you, her honoring of you, her whole person being there with your whole person. So the teaching of that presence comes before that there can be this voyage down the you. And Otto Scharmer is describing that often when we are struggling with something, we want to jump from the struggle to the solution. And that we cannot jump from the struggle to the solution. We must be willing to open up the struggle to the layers and layers of experience that he calls going down the you, because the more open you are to the struggle, the more you're gonna enter into beliefs that you carry that actually cause suffering that you don't even know about. Like, I don't deserve to be loved. I deserve to be alone and struggle by myself. That's underneath all the layers of that problem. I put it in quotes. And so when you get down to you, Otto Sharma says, it is the hardest thing to acknowledge but in the presence, in the loving, compassionate, powerful presence of a whole human with you, and that was your wife, you were able to go down at you to the bottom belief that is so painful even to pronounce. But as you pronounce it, and her loving eyes are with you, and you are in connection feeling, at that point, I don't deserve connection, I only deserve to be alone, I'm not worthy. And you're in there, and those loving eyes are looking at you. Suddenly, from the future, there is a call that says, but together you and I can make it. But our love is actually stronger than anything I've ever felt before. And suddenly, there are statements from a future that is calling that is different than anything you even expected to pronounce. And so he calls that the you theory that you cannot jump from struggle to solution. You must have the courage to be fully honest about everything that's inside of that struggle till you hit the bottom. And then the future will begin to call with, with empowering statements that also live inside of you, but that you could not know before you did the journey down the U. And so why is the, the not knowingness, right, in
0: that? I remember repeating so, it over, why is that important? Why is that right. an essential so as you part went of down, the journey?
2: As you went down the U, you arrived at the place of not knowing because you had never spoken about any of this and you would say, I don't know. And, to, and anything new comes out of not knowing. No new invention. There's been some improvement on inventions, you know, when you you, make something better. But something new comes from not knowing. And the the not knowing in connection allows something new to be birthed. And so as you go down the U, you hit, I don't know, many times, but you're not alone. You're with your partner there. And in not knowing in connection, suddenly you could see something showed up. And on the way down the U, what showed up was more pain on the way up the you what showed up was new possibility. Yeah. And so- what, what
0: was interesting was it took a lot longer going down than coming back up. Right. The,
2: <laughs> Gravity <laughs>
0: doesn't work with <laughs> this.
2: The, the future calling has energy to it. And right. the going down was really just heavier and heavier till it was the biggest pain that you've ever experienced.
0: And do you see it the same as a collective, as a, as a society that there needs to be, that, that level of not knowing, that reaching the bottom of the you, and then that, that future calling?
2: Very much so. And I, I love that we can talk this way as a human collective, that we can allow ourselves to feel the pain of our disconnection to the utter degree, and the future will call and say, this is what we're capable of as humans. Indeed, I think the future has begun to call here. But before we can actually hear it fully, as, as a collective, we ought to feel how painful it's been that we've had wars and we've put bombs in the sacred space between us and that we've polluted our environment to feel all that we've done so that we actually can come up and make those choices from a, from an enlightened place. Indeed.
0: Yeah. So I I imagine that some people listening were curious about that experience of having a partner fully present with you, right? That which which is, I, I remember you reminded me and Freddie at different times, like you called yourself the customs lady and you said, don't bring any of your baggage <laughs> right in. That's your own fear. That's your own security. Just be fully present with what the person is experiencing. You'll hear something. So yeah. I, I recall you saying something. Once you take 96
2: million couples through this, it'll be a, tip, a tipping point. Was that the right number? That's right. 90 million. 93% 90 90 million, million. of the population. When, When 90 million couples know how to sanctify the space between them, cross the bridge to their partner in full presence and create that encounter of the souls. Once 90 million couples can do that, (laughs) we have an epidemic, we have a pandemic (laughs) of connection. So so for those listening in.
1: Where are we up to as far as 90 million goes?
2: I, I don't know, I don't know. There's quite a few couples around the world who have learned how to be there for each other in that way, how to sanctify that space between them and (laughs) how to really cross the bridge and be so fully present that the encounter occurs. So there's quite a few. Uh, So
0: what would you advise to anyone listening in? (laughs) (laughs) What would you advise to anyone listening in who who wants that experience? And, you know, right now you're probably not... uh, See, not seeing anyone, right? You're not, you're not working with couples. So, what, what would you advise? And people are home. People are feeling that, right? right. That real um,
2: right. some of
0: the challenges that exist in relationships really rear its head at this point.
2: Well, it's it's a good idea to know that visual that the two of you are two worlds that are very, very different. And if you're a couple, you're incompatible. Only incompatible people get together. You know, the grandmother of a friend said, if you're the same, one of you is superfluous. So we are incompatible, we're different. And we're two different worlds. And the first visual is that the space between us is what we are responsible for. It's sacred space. And we are responsible to sanctify it. How do we do that? By knowing there's a bridge, a narrow bridge, between the two worlds, and that we don't meet in the middle of the bridge. We cross the bridge all the way to the other person. So each one of us learns how to leave our own world and Walk slowly over that bridge and land in the world of our partner to learn them. Just to hear who they are. Let them talk and you just peacefully, present, hear them. Repeat what they say, but you know when you speak that way, it's good to go to the essence. Just a short statement that speaks your truth and listen deeply when you visit their world. They're the host, you're the visitor. And what happens when you actually have a real visit like this, your souls unite because they're meant to be unified. And when one person shows up in the world of the other and does what's called generative listening, it's all of me listens to all of you, then our souls are meant to come together It's called the encounter. And each time you have, every couple has known the encounter. Is that magical moment where you just feel it's, we're in eternal time here. We're just together. When that occurs again and again and again, you begin to live in the zone of the encounter. And that's the purpose really, that in a relationship you be able to live together in the zone of the encounter. But that requires a few of those visits. Over the bridge where the space between you becomes richer, the soil becomes fertile between the two of you. H- having experienced
0: it, I know exactly what you're talking about, but I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who's never have, never has, and they're listening <laughs> into yes. this and saying, what the hell is she talking about? She's on a different planet. <laughs> so, yeah, but it is, it is. That's why I said it's a spiritual journey. It was something that I've, I've never um experience i've never experienced before and it's why freddie and i were were so eager to come back and experience it again and we also i didn't mention this but we went to a couple of your workshops in between the group workshops as well and there's something magical but one thing i did take away which was logical was what you spoke about now was the space between the couple and that the children um, grow up in the space between the couple and i've seen that especially i have a son and a daughter uh, my son is 22 months, my daughter is nine months, but my son from a very young age, the slightest anything going on between me and my wife, his mood his mood shifted. And when things were good, I mean his, even now I still see it, but I saw even at five or six months old where he just, Freddie and I for once for a week, we weren't um, encountering enough. <laughs> we, we weren't crossing the bridge. I wasn't crossing the bridge as much as I needed to. And he woke up in the middle of the night, every single night crying. And then um, one of us pointed out to each other and said, hey, me, maybe that's why. And we sorted it out. We, that gave us enough motivation to sit down and work through it. And that night he slept like a baby. And actually, you know, like the expression, not like a real baby. He slept like yes. the expression, the baby in yes. the expression.
2: Yes, the space between the couple is the playground of the child. Right, that and one. So he, he could feel his playground had gotten polluted.
0: Rabbi Simmon, did you get a sense of why people flock to her?
1: I get a sense why you flock. (laughs) Um, uh, I just wanted to throw in this, if I may. I think um, the importance of the unknown is really to uh, remind us that the structures of our lives and the definitions that we hold on to so desperately are not real. They're temporary and they're superficial in most cases. I, I always like to use the expression when it comes to love, celebration of your vulnerability. As soon as people hear the word vulnerable in our day and age, it sounds very foreboding, very frightening. I want to be invulnerable. What do you mean vulnerable? Vulnerable means I'm weak. Um, defenseless. You know, we have spent so many years building up armor, defense mechanisms, and we um, have actually become, sometimes people say who you are, is, your mask has become you because we wear so many masks. If you look at a, a newborn child, the beauty of a newborn child, which, you know, to me, that's the template that God created, not man created. A newborn child, nine months, Completely submerged in the embryonic fluids underwater in the mother's womb, no matter whether the mother is functional or dysfunctional. And the child emerges to this world pure, like freshly fallen snow. We all relate to it because we, we are all we're all that child. What happened since? The toxins of life, whether it's the physical toxins that we breathe or ingest, or is the psychological ones of our parents' attitudes our social attitudes, school. They shape us into someone that we never really began as. So you suddenly have a a tension between, let's call it the real vulnerable and natural you, that, that unknown is very healthy. A child loves the unknown, it explores, it's an adventure, it's a free abandon. And suddenly we turn now into these control freaks that need everything figured out, some more control than others, because we've developed these insecurities that we have are forcing us to turn to all kinds of crutches, which frankly, are only there as instant gratification, but it's shaped our lives. Like you mentioned before, um, I think Haiti mentioned, no one would believe three months ago, someone would have said, hey, let's all take a break. No more work, no more performing arts, no more sports, no more clubs, no more bars, no more restaurants. People would say, you're crazy. What do you mean? That's my whole life. I have a whole schedule. I have a whole plan. Well, one thing we know for sure, we're not in control. We are not in control. You're not in control of your schedule. You can't even plan something a month from now because we have no clue what's going to happen. Every day, the unknown becomes more and more obvious. So what's happening is very simple. The structures and the routines and the patterns that we thought we can live with, can't live without are not there. So you're either left with two options. You're gonna sink because you feel there's nowhere to hold, nothing to hold on to, or you're gonna swim. And a good swimmer learns to navigate even when everything else has been taken from you. Cause you know, one thing has not been taken from you is your soul. You're alive, thank God. And God should protect us all, as I said. But you have a soul. You may have neglected it. You may have ignored it, but you have that. I'm maybe re- saying it my own, you know, it's good to hear it sometimes in a different language. I think it's a lot what Haiti said. I think what you both were discussing. I just wanted to put it in uh, maybe more layman's language. I'm not, you know, um, if you want to put it that way. But I really think it's such a comfort zones. Tell me something. When you tell someone, get out of your comfort zone. Who wants to get out of a comfort zone? By definition, I'm comfortable there. Why would I get out of my comfort zone? So what usually happens in life, you don't get out of your comfort zone. You're ripped away from your comfort zone because something happens. A loss, a trauma, you, you hit rock bottom, whatever it is. It's, never, it's very rare that people wake up, you know what? Enough of comfort zones, I'm, I'm ready to move on. It doesn't happen usually. I wish it did. It's the million dollar question. Why can't we wake up without being woken up? You know, why does something have to crack? But that's human nature. And the mystics explain it in the concept. I'm sure Haiti has heard of it. I'm sure Ellie. Concept of the great symptom, the the big mystic, the great mystic of Isaac Luria from the 16th century. And he lived in plenty of times of his own epidemics, discusses the secret of the great symptom, the great concealment. We live in a fundamentally concealed reality. Reality is not clarity. It's hidden. You open up the Bible, what does it say? God created heaven and earth, and it was covered in darkness. There's darkness. Today they know in science, one of the biggest discoveries, that 99% of the universe is black matter or black energy. Dark. We don't see what we think we see. We think we see. And then there are events that happen either individually or collectively, where suddenly your comfort zone—you you realize, no, you haven't seen because you—you don't realize it. But those that embrace this symptom, that symptom is the ultimate unknown, the mystery of the divine concealment, where divine reality and divine consciousness is the only reality. And suddenly, here we are, independent individuals, everyone playing their little games. How is that possible? How is it even possible that when we're have such an intrinsic unity that connects us well, like one organism, that one person could hurt another person, whether it's spouses or whether it's communities or whether it's nations. And the mystics all come back with one answer because we're, conce- we don't see it. We don't feel it. I believe right now, someone told me the other day, I can't wait to just say hello to the elevator man in my building. <laughs> right, true. We suddenly are realizing that simple connections between us is so valuable. We took it for granted. Now I'm not suggesting that this is a punishment or this is uh, because, but the re, the result of it is an, a cosmic, I would say, unprecedented wake up call. Because epidemics that happened in the Middle Ages were were localized. We didn't travel. The the, the Spanish flu, where you go back to the bubonic plagues. So we have an epic opportunity here. You know. God should protect that, that no one should be taken. But there are millions of us, billions of us, and the comfort zones are gone. I sometimes, you know, I, I cry for the losses, but I sometimes smile to myself, you know, in they say expression, a, und Gott lacht. a person thinks and God uh, laughs or smiles. Now there's no laughter today. There's plenty to cry about, but there's a certain, it's good to be vulnerable, my friends. That's what I want to say. It's good mm-hmm. to be vulnerable. It's reality, real reality. If I may add one thing, I think it's very fascinating. There's actually a verse in the Torah that everybody talks about. The famous expression, Moses turns to God and they were they were intimate, they were lovers in the most powerful way. They talk to each other in ways that are mind blowing. Intimacy, so Moses turns to God in a moment of truth. And he says to God, you know, Moses is praying for the Jewish people that God forgive them for their iniquity of building the golden calf. They were basically, they betrayed God, infidelity, okay? Um, And Moses is praying, God is responding. And Moses says to God, show me your face, show me your, I wanna see all of you. I wanna see all of you. It's a verse in the, and God says to him, no man can live. No man can see me and, and live. Then God continues, the verse says, it says the following. I will show you my back, but my face I will not show you. So here's just a few short questions. First of all, Moses was a wise man. He understood you can't see God and live because if you see God, you are God. You can't be independent consciousness and be one with divine consciousness. Secondly, why are we documenting something if it's rejected? Why do we need to know that God said no? And then why is God rubbing it in and say, my back I will show you, meaning my expressions, my more external side, but I will not, but my face you will not see. And an answer I once heard from my Rebbe teacher, then I found it in the, one of the students of the Baal Shem Tov. Amazing answer. It, it's mind-blowing if you think about it. God says to Moses, no, no. Read the verse, I will show you my face, I will show you my back and my face but my face you will see by not looking. There are things we see through looking, and there are things we see when we let go, that emerge. You wanna see me in my entirety? You're gonna to have to strip yourself of everything you are. When you're ready to do that, we will become one. So there are things you see of me, yes, we see God's beautiful world, we see our health, we see other blessings, but you wanna see God, naked, it completely, as the essence, you will need to not look, because even that temptation to peak, one peak, it's you. You want me, you need to completely be, not annihilated, completely suspend yourself. Complete emptiness.
0: When we let go, we let come.
1: Absolutely. and it's I, 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 Earlier in the Bible, actually, when God first appears to Moses in the burning bush, so God says to Moses, look at me. And Moses closes his eyes. He puts his eyes down because he's like overwhelmed. He doesn't look. So the Talmud says, God said to Moses, when I asked you to look at me, you closed your eyes. Now when you want me just now you want to see me? No, no, no. So what is this, tit for tat? He's playing a game? No, because God was saying, you want to see me on your terms or you want to see me on my terms? And I think what Haiti and what you, Ellie were saying, what I believe really, the essence of a relationship is that each partner can actually, I will see you through your eyes, not through my eyes. You know, it's like that joke. They say a guy goes on a date, talks about himself for two hours and then turns to the woman and says, okay, enough about me. Now, what do you think about me? You know? So it's like two levels of narcissism. First he talks about himself and then he's being benevolent and he's giving her the opportunity for now you can talk about me. You know, that's like, as if he's, that's like giving her space. The Mm -hmm. truth, the truth is, go back to the childlike. Look at children, how vulnerable they are. They completely trust their parents until they learn, God forbid, not to. They completely give themselves away. How many people are able to give themselves to their partner? Absolutely. We don't trust. Not the partner. We don't trust ourselves. We don't trust our parents. We don't trust our structures. And you know what, my friends? God pulled a quick one. He took away all our security blankets and says, here, now you're quarantined with your spouse, with your children and figure it out. You know, I I had a couple that called me last week and said, we can't get along in regular times. (laughs) And thank God for work. Thank God for for entertainment. We go to a restaurant every three, every two days. So, you know, we have many ways to escape our uh, situation. Now, what do we do? And they were both on the phone. I said, you know what, now you grow up. Enough with the games, enough escapes. Now you grow up. Yes, you're gonna sink or swim. You know, there's no magic tricks. Now you're stripped. You can't say, Oh, I got to run to the office. And she says, let's talk together. No, we we have to go to a meal. You know, now we rise to the occasion. And you know something I have total belief that we have everything we need inside ourselves. This is not comfortable. Trust me. It's, it's, and it's not getting better because you know, people still think it's like an earthquake and maybe next week, you know, it's all going to change. I hope so, but I hope we don't go back to the old normal. We need a new normal. And, um, the unknown, my friends, is the most comfortable place. If you learn to embrace it, nothing can destroy you. Because unknown actually makes you stronger. It's like the less you know, the more powerful you are. Whereas if you think you know everything, the, so as soon as there's something you don't know, or is not in your control, you go nuts. So it's a very peaceful place, actually. Would you
2: agree, Haiti? <laughs> uh, I agree. And I think you know having some tools, how to surrender because I think it's tough for couples to know how do I surrender. But the the view is like this. If you know I I live in Haiti world, you love live in Rabbi Simon world. When I listen to you well
1: if you're gonna do a rabbi simon then you have to do a rabbits in Haiti.
2: Oh okay <laughs> okay my father in law used to call me the <laughs> That's very sweet. Oh,
1: that's the ultra the okay. rabbits.
2: Yes, yes. Uh Simon When I listen to you, to really hear what you say, I need to leave what I know, where I am, what I've learned, and just sort of new, like a truly new, come over and just enter into into you see, you know, into into me see, into you see, and if I let go of everything, I can begin. To really hear the layers of what you're saying, but if I'm already thinking, well, what should I say, and when when is it my turn, and then I won't know what you are trying to to give.
0: I want to I want st- to step in for a second just yeah. to introduce who Rabbi Simon is, and I think that um, some of it may be very interesting in terms of this. So Rabbi Simin, I, I believe one of the ways you became well known was by memorizing the Rebbe's talks and it was done on the Sabbath and on holidays. Sometimes you have to memorize for three days straight. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Let me, let me, okay. I, it, I, I was about, I was thinking, we, we think alike. I'm, I'm, I don't mean to interject because actually what you're saying is listening goes both ways, right. but I think this is vital. I used to do something, which is very rare since Shabbat and holidays, there are no tape recorders and no notes. So the Rebbe would speak for, I could think of a Moses speaking for six, seven hours. And we had to remember, very few of us could do it well verbatim. So let's say an hour of his speaking would yield 20 pages, double spaced, if it was a recording. So essentially five hours is a hundred pages and we had to recreate that. I did that for a good 15 years. So is, I'll just say one short, I could say a lot about it, obviously. It's completely, emptying your mind right which is extremely difficult is is it a skill or
0: is it brain power is it just photographic memory what is it oh no no
1: no no first of all it's not photographing it's not looking at a phone book and just remembering random numbers it was ideas i'll tell you what it is the brain has two wheels i mean figuratively one is the absorber and one is a processor children remember so well why do we remember stories alphabet Mm -hmm. language because children are like a dry sponge a dry sponge absorbs. Adult minds, especially the smarter you are, the more saturated your brain becomes. You have ideas, you have preconceived notions, and you have even, it's actually your strength. Why would you suspend that? But you're a wet sponge, and a, and a, and a wet saturated sponge does not absorb well. So we have, imagine an adult has to now empty your process, shut down your processor, and only absorb. So exactly what Haiti was just saying. It's, It changed my life, to be honest. I don't know who I would be with. It sounds
0: like a deeply meditative state for
1: hours. It's exactly that. It's a full concentration on another and absorbing what they have to say. As a matter of fact, you'll find this almost counterintuitive. If I understood what my teacher was saying, I didn't remember it as well than if I didn't understand it. Talk about the unknown. You know why? Because if I understood it, I was fitting it into my existing framework. So it wasn't necessarily what he was actually saying. He may be saying something similar. And right away you say, oh, that answers a question. You're right away fitting it into your framework. It's like when people, I could tell immediately, I always ask as a, it's a a trick question. I say, how many of you are good listeners? No good listener will ever raise their hand because you never ask a person if you're a good listener. You ask their spouse if they're a good listener. (laughs) You ask their partner, their friend, how do they know if they're a good listener? So the idea is, it is exactly what God told Moses: "When you won't look, you'll see." So I have to tell you this. I mean, it's very relevant. I I, I do workshops on it: how to train people. I'll I'll share an exercise, by the way, if you like. Me to, I mean, yes.
2: I yeah. don't want to hog this either. I feel that's not,
1: given this, this. No, but this
2: I, I've heard about you, not you specifically, that people actually on Shabbos would do just yeah. what you did.
1: Exactly. It was. I could tell you. It's so um, overwhelming. So let me answer Ellie's question. It's 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 no question. Some people have a gift. It needs it needs concentration, because you get mind gets tired as well. Remember, this is Simchas when when let's say Simchas Torah was on a Friday. There was a talk on Thursday night. A talk on Friday after late afternoon. Shabbat day, Shabbat night. Four talks, and you can imagine Simchas Torah with a little lechem and uh, dancing is not exactly conducive for memory, for your memory banks, but. I remember that what it did for me was it changed everything. What real listening is. People think listening is hearing. Listening is listening. It's so I'm going to suggest two things. May I, since we're talking about exercises with Ellie's permission. I'm very engaged. (laughs) You're listening. (laughs) Or you're a process. (laughs) You know, you often hear someone speak. And then, and they say, wow, that was great. I'm going to come home. I'll tell my wife, my, my husband, my friend. You come home. You say, I just heard something great. And what happens? They say, tell me, tell me. And you don't have the words. What happened? You heard the person make sense, but you did not own it yet. You did not absorb it. That takes work. So here are a few, ex- I'll just suggest two. So here's one exercise. I've done this with around f- uh, 1,500 people in small audiences. You can't do this. The, the, the exercise is as follows, and it's excellent for nowadays, your home, do this. I, it, it's really excellent for this, I didn't even think of it, for this quarantine. Take any book, any, it could be a Hebrew book, it could be a text, it could be a novel, it doesn't matter, and re- read one or two pages. The objective is read it as many times as you like, no time limit. Close the book and write down on a piece of paper what you just read and then see how well you did. Compare the original to what you wrote. So I did it with a group, let's say- Are you trying to group. do it
0: word for word or capture the ideas? No, no,
1: no the ideas, the flow of ideas. It doesn't have to be word for word, no. Yeah. No word for word. It's not memorizing words, it's ideas. The idea, convey it. I did it with many groups, always the same results. It's not a scientific research, but I'll just show you the results. So before we begin, I always ask people, so tell me, what do you think? You'll capture 80%, 90%, 100%. Most people say between 75 and 80. You know, nobody's going to say 100, even if they believe they could. Anyway, we begin. And I see right away the smart ones, they're not, they are not—they—they do it. They knock it off. They write their notes. They sit down like this. Like, you know, they're waiting now for the, all the slow ones to catch up. We finished exercise 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I ask everyone to give the book and what you wrote to your neighbor and say so. How well did they do? Market it, evaluate it. Nobody gets over seventy percent the first time around. And listen to this: the smartest one, the ones who thought they were the smartest, the ones who did it quickest, get forty percent, thirty percent, fifty lower. You won't believe this.
0: Do men or women do better?
1: No, almost <laughs> e- almost equal. Almost really? Equal, I know. Uh, listen. Then this is the interesting thing. The ones that were the
0: the smartest people in
1: the room, the people who did it the quickest, sometimes they write something that contradicts what it says in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Contradicts. And when I asked them, how could you do that? How could you contradict? They said, I didn't agree with it. I said, you didn't even listen to my instructions. This is not a discussion of agreement and right or wrong. It's a discussion. What did that writer, author say? The second time around, everybody goes up by 20% because you know what, they lost their arrogance. They were humbled. Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks they're smarter than they are. Second time, everybody, by 20, it's a guarantee, 20% better. Try it out because you need to lose your confidence in something you don't really have. You, no, we are not good listeners. It's not easy for us to, children are good listeners. Adults are not. The mm-hmm. second exercise will be a shorter one is this is with spouses actually. You know, we all have our arguments. We agree to disagree with, and it becomes a cold war. Let's not go there, you know. But here's the exercise. Maybe now is a good time for this in this uh, state of sequestered state. Go to your spouse and say, I want to open up an issue that we've always had, whether it's about our children, about us, about some matter. And I'm going to try to share with me your position on this matter. I'm going to listen, I'm not gonna argue, and I'm going to try to repeat to you your position, even if I don't agree with it. And how well am I conveying what you really believe? Now, you can imagine, this, if you can even do that, you're already in good shape. Most of us can't hear something we disagree with, because we right away look at the weaknesses in it. No, she's not getting it right, or he's not getting it right. So the mere fact that a person can do that, very difficult to repeat something to someone in a sincere and full full account that you disagree with. Basically, these are all exercises in the unknown. They're all exercises of what Hasidic thought calls bital. You're suspending yourself Mm -hmm. to be able to absorb something greater than yourself. It could be a person and it could be God. We are definitely now in a collective bital of ayin, of a suspension that we didn't ask for, but through it, we can learn and tremendous. It's, it's a time for true listening. So, On that
0: note, uh, maybe we'll take a short music break. Elior, you're still with us? <laughs> Let's see if he's still there. And he fell asleep. It's late in Israel.
1: Maybe I'll sing if you like.
3: <laughs> Elior. Here he Hi.
0: Hi. I, I've been back and forth between two songs in my head, but one song I understand what it means. One song I don't, and then I'm going to ask the rabbi to explain what the prayer is. But I'm back and forth, so I'll, I'll put it between, and you choose one or the other. One or the other. I didn't hear you. Please. You got to get your headphones in. We don't hear you yet. It's a little low. Sit in the unknown. We don't know if he's going to get it to work.
1: Hey. And the true unknown is that we don't know what we don't know.
0: <laughs> right? What, so who told me that there's three levels of there's knowing there's like knowing what you know, knowing what you don't know, and not knowing what you don't you know, not knowing what you don't know.
1: Right. That's no
0: the way hardest way. part because you don't even right. can't even imagine, right? Uh, while while Elior gets it set up, I said I was thinking you're you're kind of in ground zero of all of this, right? I um, I grew up in Crown Heights. I no longer live there, but my first grade, one of my first grade teachers passed. One of my fifth grade teachers passed. I don't know them as well now, obviously. But I think you must know so many people who've passed or are very sick in. Uh,
1: I, I, unfortunately, I think it's not just in my community. I think anyone in New York knows right. people. You know, I don't think it's more Brooklyn clan people. You know, we, it's a smaller. It's a closed community.
0: I'm saying it's ground zero, like, zero as in New York. I mean, I, has, I
1: I dread to look at the website that every day you're seeing. Today, five people passed in this community. Yeah. So. so how, um, how
0: are you dealing with that? I'm sure there are people here who have. Uh, people many of these in. people
1: I grew up with. Many of them are people who I were. I respected were, were either rabbis or teachers or just nice family people. Um, honestly, in my case, uh, I think it's a combination of a little denial and a little um, uh, getting on webinars like this that just avoid the <laughs> So I love talking about the unknown and that way it just, I mean, I'm, I'm saying it half humorously. Frankly, it's, 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 it's even more tragic. People can't be buried properly. They can't be a Tara. They can't do properly. There's no Shiva. because yeah. You can't go visit. I mean, I know that seems pales in comparison. It's, uh, I've never seen anything. I mean, to say that in the year 2020, March, April, 2020, you know, you're going to like wiped out tens and tens. So far it's 20, 30 people that I'm personally, know, I can't wrap my head around it. You know, it reminded me when my father passed away 15 years ago, that was a personal loss, but death honestly, is exactly what we're talking about. Death is the ultimate of the unknown. We don't understand death. We can't wrap our heads around death. So to me, when my father passed, it was actually very liberating. Now, not liberating, God forbid, the pain. I realized, I was. I remember I wrote an article called Raw Oval. Oval is the name for a mourner. It's complete rawness. You know, it's surreal. Like, everything didn't matter. All my plans, and suddenly, when that door opens... Once at birth, and then life comes in from another world to this world, and at death, when it leaves this world and goes, you realize, like people talk about birth. It's, it's a magic, it's, it's a miracle. Nobody can deny that. Where does this child come from? And here we are. So we know a little about this life between birth to death, and we think we're big masters. I, I always tell people who ask me, I used to always loss of words. Where does a soul go to upon death? And I realized the question is arrogant. It's coming from a very misplaced uh, assumption that we're the center of the universe. So we ask, where does the soul go to? So I came up with this ridiculous uh, metaphor. Think of a refrigerator and electricity having a dialogue. And the refrigerator says to the electricity, where do you go to when they pull the plug? And what do you think the electricity answers? What kind of chutzpah? What kind of of arrogance? What kind of uh, incredulous, you know, what kind of... um, Who do you think you are? They just invented you 100 years ago, 200 years ago. They figured out how to contain electricity to refrigerate food. And now you think you're the center of the universe. You ask me where I go? I go back to where I was always, not contained by a little box, beyond time and space as you know it. And you'll never understand it because you don't know anything outside of your little box. And I know it's not, but the truth is anyone that hears that, even people who suffer, they say, of course. In a second you say, of course that's true. We decided our box, our comfort zone, our structures, that's reality. I remember when the Matrix, the movie came out. It resonated with many because suddenly you question, one second, maybe this is one big computer program that is uh, controlling us. How do you know it isn't? So to me, that's how I wrap my head. To me, death, I've learned you become humbled. It reminds you that you know very little. You know a little about your reality. You have to make the best of what your life is. You have to submit and surrender that the narrative of life and the choreography of your life is not written by you. The only thing that you can write is how you're going to react to it. How will you navigate? Will you become a greater person for it? Will you be part of the problem or part of the solution? It really comes down to that. It's not that complicated. We have much more, we have all these complicated systems and structures, but uh, I, I would love somebody to, Tell me what, what other factor really plays into this. What do you think, Katie?
0: Elior, did you get your, um, your music going? Your sound?
1: No, it's not coming. Maybe he's muted, is he muted? No. He's not muted. I'll mute
0: and unmute. Elior, not working?
1: Okay, meant to be. Maybe sing on a lower pitch. <laughs> it's meant to be. <laughs>
2: no, I. Now
0: you hear me. I, I, we hear you. We hear you. But it's very low. Now it's very low.
3: Now you can hear me better.
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: Excellent. So after we discuss, we can agree this Eno de Milvado. He's only him.
0: Sing the name of the song he's going to sing is Enod Milvado. There's nothing but him. There's nothing but God.
3: Yeah. Uh, okay, sing a part from the song. Just a moment. Enod Milvado. Only him. חווים שמהירים את העולם והיא מזמן מאלנים. טיפסתי על פסגות תרים בדרך, גם שאלתי בצד החכמים. לא נתתי לעיניי להסתבר מהמרות, והבנתי שיותר מדי זה לפעמים פחות. לקחתי לי מתוך השקל שיר לנשמה. אין עוד מלבדו, מלוא כל הארץ כבודו, הקדוש ברוך הוא מלך ואני אבדו. במלחמות אל מול היצר כמו מגבר צמא למה אם האדם נכנע ושוב הנפש מבקשת למוסדור מתחת לכנפי השכינה גם אני עמדתי בפתח כמו כולם מבקש סליחה me Lord is Thank you Elior. beautiful
0: Thank you. Even with the sound quality not there, it's beautiful. It comes through amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eliar. I really appreciate it. I know it's late. It's like 11.30 in, uh, in Israel, so I really appreciate you joining, and it, it means a lot. Your, your heart shows, your soul shows, and we feel connected.
3: God bless you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. Nice wow. music
0: break. Katie, someone asked um, a question, how do you go down the you without a partner? If someone doesn't have a partner.
2: Yeah. You know, I th- I do think that these types of vulnerable uh, uh, Rabbi Simon was talking about vulnerabilities. These v- vulnerable ways of showing ourselves need to be done in connection. It doesn't have to be with a partner, but I think we can't do this alone. We need the eyes of another. And it's very interesting. The research has shown that all the organs we have regulate from within, but not the brain. The brain needs another brain to regulate. It what does that mean to regulate? To regulate. So the heart, the lungs, the intestines, all these organs regulate themselves from within. But for the brain to calm down, to feel like, okay, I went from deregulation to regulation, we need another brain. We need the eyes of another. So if parents say, you know, go to your room and handle this by yourself, it's actually not correct from a brain point of view because we need their eyes with us as we have our tantrum and our reaction and all of that. And so any of these deeply vulnerable places, the way we were created is that we need another there with us, doesn't have to be our partner, there needs to be another human, a friend, you know, a good friend. And because the, this depth of vulnerability, we, if we feel it alone, the word is really deregulates us. Our central nervous system can't calm down. When the eyes of the other, like the ones that you have for me right now, when the eyes of the other are there with you, the central nervous system says, okay, I can relax. So that journey down the you, which is the ultram- ultimate vulnerability, must be done with the eyes of a friend. Can be your partner, can be a friend.
1: It could also be done with God in a way. You're right. Even You're... though that's not a physical entity.
2: You're right. You write about that, and you know it's interesting. Your relationship with God then must be such that you really can feel the shepherd with you. Then, yes. I remember a workshop we did in Israel, and a man came back after lunch, and he actually had light around him, and everybody in the workshop wanted to know, how come there's a light around you? He said, at lunchtime, when I prayed Mincha, I crossed the bridge to God. I actually went over there. I left my world. I surrendered myself, and I brought my presence to God and uh, you could feel it in him. That's very true. Yes.
0: Very interesting. So um, often when, when we work together, you brought up a lot of different, like you mentioned, um, Frey and I sat 18 inches apart, which is an Amah, which is like the Kruvim. So um, is this something you do with everyone where you connected to, to like those Jewish concepts or was something you felt comfortable with me and you knew, to make me comfortable with it. Meaning, is that, is that part of your education on this subject?
2: You know, it's interesting. With you and Freddie, I can say that 18 inches of separation is an amah. And it is the distance between the Kurvim of the tabernacle. But 18 inches, biologically, is the distance of a baby to the parent's face. And so a baby is a master at reading the landscape of the face, and they do it at 18 inches. A little child who wants your attention, they'll take your face and bring it at 18 inches. Pay attention to me because they know at that place, biologically, the eye eye only sees the other and everything else is a little bit, you know. Fuzzy. Yeah. But it's the only
0: thing in clear vision, you're saying at 18 inches. Exactly, correct, focus. Right.
2: And so 18 inches is really the distance when you really want to connect and you want, well, you know how I have you sit, hold hands, look into each other's eyes, take a breath and really do that looking at each other to begin with in gratitude just for this moment, because then the central nervous system calms down and you can begin. This visiting each other. So, world. someone
0: sent in a, a question saying, "If they're in quarantine with one of their partners and they regulate themselves from stress and anxiety very differently, so how do you, how do you rec- You know, when just as partners, the way they deal with things. I mean, the way I'm hearing the question, and maybe it's not what you're saying, but the way I'm hearing the question is: Imagine I regulate by being alone, and she regulates by talking things out. Yeah. I, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah so
0: distress. I
2: think usually couples are together. One person is an extrovert, a person who who n- gets nourished through connection, and one person is an introvert gets nourished by a visit on the inside in solitude with a rich inner world uh you know that is really a way people do i'm talking about how do you regulate in connection? If you, like uh, Rabbi Simon said, you know, you really want to express something that you know your partner has a difficult time with, and you want them to hear it. How do you do that? And for that, you want that 18 inches, the togetherness, the breathing, the holding, and then one person actually surrenders and leaves their world And does this surrendered listening that just hears deeply, deeply what the other one is saying and repeats it, you know, repeats it so that you know, and repeats it from a deep place, not like a tape recorder, but really allowing what the other person says to really enter deeply. And so the reason you do it so close is because, there is then the regulation that is inside of your body. You're calm, and you can actually do something challenging. Yeah. Hey, let, I me, you let me pose me a question. Times. I, may? This one, this one, I remember
0: Haiti stopped me a few times when I repeated right after Frady said something.
2: Yeah, to let right? it he You said, like,
0: let, let it penetrate first, you listen, give it penetrate. five or six seconds. Really, really take
2: it in. Exactly.
1: Yes. I received the email the other day. It says, I'm married to a narcissist, and uh, who's always been a narcissist. And now, even with this so-called wake-up call, narcissist doesn't necessarily wake up. You no, know, we've been talking about people who at least are open to the unknown, who, uh, well, for whatever reason, either they've been hurt, or they've come to an epiphany, or realization. But what do you do actually, if you are married or you're, you're with a person who really just simply cannot see beyond themselves, no matter what happens, even yeah. in an epidemic like this, even with everything going on? And uh, is this a time to get divorced? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to be. And, mm. and, and there, you know, I've never liked to believe that there are people beyond hope, but I've, Unfortunately, you see sometimes just a person who's just simply not capable. Whether it's It's clinical, whether it's natural, whether it's nurture nature. Interesting to hear
2: what
1: you guys have to say.
2: (laughs) It's very painful to live alone in a relationship because the person you're with cannot leave their world, cannot even for a moment cross that bridge to see that you even exist. And that's really a deep, deep loneliness. And, um, you know, sometimes people come and what they need to do in a very dignified and honoring way is say goodbye to each other sometimes, but it isn't out of a reaction, but rather out of an understanding that let's do this goodbye in the most honoring way of the journey we've had together. And, you know, I find often that when people come to say goodbye in that way, they say hello in a new way because in learning how to say goodbye to the relationship in an honoring way, they suddenly realize there is another way to be in connection. You said, you, when people, you say hello
0: in a new way, do you mean they stay married? or stay that
2: married. They, they decide stay married. to create a whole new era in which they now know we've said goodbye to all of that.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: And we've said goodbye to all of that with all the tools that, you've learned. And suddenly it looks like, Hey, with those tools, we can create a new era and be together in a whole different way. You
0: know, I think in the relationship with Freddie and I, there was uh, an on and off for about three years. And then we said, you know what, we're done. And we both meant it. And we walked away. We said, we're just, (laughs) we keep going in the same cycle. Let's get off the train.
1: I see someone Um, chatting. Uh, I'm with a narcissist, egotistic person. Respect that. Expect nothing from them, and protect yourself.
3: <laughs>
1: okay, it's 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 not a joke. I, I I was gonna say I don't know if I cut you off. Were you saying anything, Ellie? I'm sorry. You was. Saying... Okay, go go ahead. Sorry, just
0: um, I, I lost my train of thought. Oh, that uh,
2: you decided that that was it.
0: Oh, and then we met, so so we separated for about six months, where we did not. Um, speak to each other and we really thought that the relationship was over we had we got off the train and then when we reconnected it was uh, it was different but i think it was that space that allowed us to completely walk away and not hold on and i think we were holding on to the early stage of the relationship where we were so close and it was clear that there was a very powerful connection between us but then there was a lot of interruption and over several years i think we both wondered sometimes together and sometimes separately could we get back to those initial few months where it was very special. And I think we, we've, done, we've done that on some, on some level, but we had to get off the train, both of us, and say goodbye. So we didn't do it, um, you know, in, it, we didn't do it in your office, but we did, you know, and it's right. but interesting.
1: Yeah. Sometimes people um, think, and I, I, I never like to confirm it, but I've heard this. Some people say, you know, I read somewhere that sometimes uh, children, God forbid, who are born, with a uh, disability, or handicap, or even worse, that in some way, it, it, it's a challenge to the family, but it can bring out deeper love and deeper resources. And in a certain way, it's a tikkun. Why that child has to suffer, why it was again part of the mysteries. So someone suggested to me, could be I'm married to a person who, this is my destiny, to uh, simply never really have a full expectations and, in some way, bringing out greater strengths for me not to become a bitter person who reciprocates you know, whenever I hear that, I always like to say to myself one second, "You know maybe this isn't your destiny, but I think especially in our time right now, we're all experiencing the unknown there are mysteries to life, and um don't always have an answer, but there's no question every person, no matter what you're facing, even if it's a narcissist or someone who just is so trapped in their own self there's Always resources. You may not be able to fix that guy or woman for that matter, but you can, something can happen inside of you. I'm just throwing that out. there.
0: Right, Simon. Someone asked a question, which is um, a little off topic, but to me, like the first realization of the coronavirus was not only our interconnectedness, but also the way we are equal. And of course, it's not completely equal going to a, you know, someone who gets sick in Africa and has to go to a hospital there and someone who goes in a first world country, of course it's not equal, but there's something about it that the virus, you know, the president of the UK has, has the virus. And uh, so someone asked the question, does this perhaps strip away this whole idea of chosen people, which suggests an unchosen or not chosen people? How would you, how
1: would you answer? Well, well, you know, in the, in the, in the Middle Ages. I'm oh.
3: Neither have I handled
1: that <laughs> one. <laughs> no, no, fine. In the Middle Ages, the Black Plague, the bubonic plague it was called, you know, they they blamed the Jews um, because they claimed that some of the Jews were not dying at the same rate as the rest of the population. And actually, some people have actually indicated that because the Jews were always washing their hands <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: right. you know, in
1: the morning, in the afternoon, by meals, after meals, you know, the whole thing. Um, uh, but we all understand Jews died as well. And obviously, the Jews did not poison the wells of the Christians I you know, firstly, I want to say this. I think the understanding of a chosen people is misunderstood by many. Uh, God created the entire universe. and He created 8 billion people now. Everyone was chosen by God. God didn't make any accidents. So no one's here by accident. So when you say chosen people, what about everybody else? Weren't they chosen? Who put them here? You know, every, every cell is chosen. So I think you could, the way to really define chosen people, my take on it at least, is chosen for a particular purpose, to either whether Abraham chose and then God chose him to bring monotheism and ethics and morality to a pagan world, everybody credits him with that. Whether it was the Jewish people at Sinai who bore the mandate, the divine mandate, how to create a civilization. So I think chosen is also, firstly, chosen for a particular role, could be the role of the teacher, the people of the book, there's all kinds of names that are not condescending, God forbid, And secondly, chosen is not about the privilege. It's about responsibility. It's not like, oh, you know, I'm chosen, so I can do whatever I like. On the contrary, you have to live up to a higher standard. And I say this right now to myself and to any Jew out there, not as different. The plague has attacked everyone. God created the entire world. We're all in it together. And it's important to know that the destiny of the world, when we talk about redemption and Messiah, we don't talk about Messiah redemption only for Jews. We're talking about a world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea, the lamb shall lie with the wolf, the eradication of famine, of disease, of war. These are all universal principles. So the plague has attacked this epidemic, pandemic has affected us all. But as Jews, I will say, we've been around for 3,800 years. We are coming to Passover in a few days. What was Passover? A story of plagues and epidemics, of inhumanity, And God telling, actually, Moses telling the people stay at home because there's a magaifa, there's an epidemic in the street. We as Jews should be rising to the occasion now and demonstrating how we find aplomb, how we find dignity and strength under pressure. That no matter what is happening to all of us, we will forge ahead and we will become a better people. I read it, it was a great article last week in Wall Street Journal. Someone wrote, cataclysms led to a great nation We should learn from the Jewish people. They Mm. didn't allow the cataclysm of Egypt, or Mm. the Holocaust for that matter. Mm. And throughout history, to destroy them, we suffered, but we did not become sufferers. Mm. In the classic uh, immortal words of of the Torah, in the beginning of Exodus, as they were oppressed, in direct proportion to that, they flourished and they thrived. Not just survived, they flourished and they thrived. So I think we have a chosen role to demonstrate that, but not in a way... It's us versus them. We're in it together. We're one people. Yeah. And frankly, I think the world has embraced many of these values. You know, concepts like if you remember the book, The Gift of the Jews by um, Cahill Thomas, excellent book, or a book like um, On Two Wings, you know, demonstrating the Jewish contribution to society. Words like optimism, destiny, providence, hope. These are words that once didn't exist. I in, think the uh, question
0: is coming from a misunderstanding of the word chosen. Instead absolutely. of Absolutely. Chosen for responsibility. Yeah, I've kind of felt that through this process. When the uh, when the virus hit, and I saw a lot of people nervous. I've had two major life experiences that I felt like prepared me for this, and in that way, chosen. Right? I haven't been hosting these things before. It's one of the reasons I said I have to put my face out even more during this process. One is three years ago, I nearly lost my business, and I went through a, a mourning period. I mean, yeah. I first a denial, and then a an intense mourning period, and then it was really after that morning that I was like, you know, maybe there's a new way to, uh, to solve this problem. And it was about a year and a half of living every single day with the thought that I would lose my business. It just scared me to pieces. It shattered my identity. And then getting to the other side of that, um, I feel like now I'm seeing a lot of people through that. And I don't have that fear because mm-hmm. I've already lost my business three years ago, meaning I've already accepted losing it, even though I didn't actually lose it. And then the other was a process of um, addiction recovery where I had to stop. I, I talk a lot about pornography and let, letting go of pornography, but it made me let go of so much more because I found when I overeat, I'm more I'm more inclined to go to pornography. I find that when I get drunk, I go to pornography. Like So much of my life had to change, certain mm-hmm. friends that I had. So I felt like seven years ago when I came into recovery from addiction, I needed to inspect and look at what what could go with me for the future me and what can't. And those two processes, and they were painful. I, I know when I, when I went through the uh, recovery from addiction and I stripped away the numbing agent that I was so dependent on, I, for about a month period, I woke up every single night in tears, like in the middle of a, a crying session, and I hadn't cried for years. And I feel like those two, like that word you used, chosen, like,
3: yeah,
0: yeah chosen for, chosen Right, chosen as special is putting someone else down, but chosen as a responsibility.
2: That's really the point. Chosen right. There's nothing. as a responsibility that you take on a s- certain task that is for you. And thank you for sharing yourself the way you do, <laughs> Ellie. I, 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 I
0: had your eyes there the whole time, thank you.
2: <laughs> I'm deeply touched to when you, uh, you know, so vulnerably share. And, and really you were describing the you, you know, that in both cases, you had to go down to be stripped all the way to go to the bottom of what hurts the most. And then you heard the future calling you and what could be your life and taking responsibility then for what you really wanted. Uh, so that's that's that you that uh, Otto Scharmer describes.
0: Rabbi Simon, is, when you hear uh, Haiti talking about the you, does that sound like you read the Tarah Haliyah, is that that same concept? And there's a kind of Hebrew that in order, when, when they taught it to us when we were kids, they always said to jump higher, you got to bend your knees. <laughs> but maybe there's a, a more, uh, a, a better explanation. Uh, does it no, connect but, 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 with what Haiti is saying, this, the, the concept? Of course. Um, and where does it come from? There oh, no, few, I heard a
1: few things that come to mind when, you hear, when I hear that. First of all, what we spoke about, the yesh, I, and yesh, much earlier. Right. That you, you begin a certain paradigm, a certain entity, identity. You lose that identity. And then only to discover a new identity, a much greater one, a, b- a bigger one. A b- so that's one concept. Um, what you just mentioned, you read the Sarah Haliya. I wouldn't have initially associated with that, even though there's an element of it, which means... The descent is in order to great, reach a greater ascent. Or sometimes the way it's put that if souls remained in heaven and were never challenged in this world, they would never be the best they can be because there would be no, cha- no resistance to bring out their best. So in a way, this material world and all its challenges poses, it poses, it conceals, we don't see reality, we get distracted, we get seduced, we get tempt- tempted. We become egocentric, self-interest, you know, the list goes on. That all that, because of that challenge, including challenges of health and mortality and so on, all bring out deeper strengths in the person that the soul would never have generated were it not pressured.
0: Where, where did the concept originate? Where's that term from? You read the Tzarek If you're not sure, I'm not the am who no, on no, the spot.
1: It's a Hasidic <laughs> thought for sure. It probably originates... In somewhere, some Talmudic expression, I would say, but definitely in the Zohar, the mystical texts. um, There is the expression, I mean, I mentioned from the Torah itself in the Bible, as they were oppressed, they thrived and they flourished. To me, that's like the essence of all recovery, that oppression is not just something to get over with. You actually harness it into tremendous tools for growth and awareness. Um, But but I'll tell you, it's quintessential mystical, Kabbalistic and Hasidic thought that we come into a world where we can be deceived into thinking that this is real. And when you're wise enough to see through it, you reach heights that you could never reach when you are in more spiritual realms. So the concept basically is that you need challenge, you need darkness to appreciate light. There's actually a verse I should mention in the book of Ecclesiastes where, where King Solomon writes, I have seen the advantage of light over darkness. Like the, the, the advantage of wisdom over folly, like the advantage of light over darkness. But the word is Yisra na orminachoshach. The the advantage, the superiority, that really if you read it literally, the light that comes from darkness. Not just that light dominates darkness. The light from that light comes over from darkness, darkness,
0: light from darkness is a
1: far greater light. I mean, I can go on, there's plenty of sources for it that um, but I think if you talk about the Jewish people, we embody, we personify this. Look what happened. How many obituaries have been written about this small fledgling nation of 14 and a half, 15, 16 million people. And every time you, the Roman empire is gone, the Nazi empire is gone, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the, you name it, the Egyptians. And here we are. Everyone wants to know the formula. And the formula is what you're just saying. They did not allow um, setbacks and uh, difficulties to um, in any way slow them down, uh, only turned they turned it into always into an asset. You know, they turned Pharaoh into a Passover Seder. They turned Haman into Hamantashen. They turned they turned Antiochus into a potato latkes. You know, it, it goes on. We've turned everything into a food. How could you not survive when you do that? <laughs> so I have a, um, I guess a final question, and if you want
0: to wrap it up with a final thought as well for each of you, so you. You're you're both very accomplished people with a strong drive and a strong purpose and a strong mission. Does it um does your mission change mission and purpose change in this setting? Is it accelerated or is it a question mark like what happens to the mission and purpose through something so um groundbreaking? And I'll tell you why I'm asking the question. So I'm curious if something as solid as a purpose and a mission could withstand something like this major, or, does it ha- or or might it have to shift with something so major? Meaning even a purpose, just like everything has to shift, maybe a purpose and a mission and a, a trajectory that's been very focused with high aspirations, maybe it shifts because of this. So a question for each and maybe some final thoughts. Beauty before. my question age. clear?
2: I, I'd like to uh, just say that, um, as you know, my mission and my vision is a world in deep connection where people really meet each other soul to soul. And right now in my life, my husband, Yumi, who we're going to celebrate 55 years of marriage, and he's so got so a so different so. memory. And so I am learning how to love my new man in this time. And somehow I get to be with him to learn somehow for me, the timing of just being with him who doesn't talk very much now. And uh, you're saying,
0: you're saying his memory is gone, right? I just want to be, yeah, yeah. his memory is going.
2: You know, so I get to, the gift is I get to be with my man, my new man, get to love him deeply in this new time and learn another mm-hmm. layer of what it's like to be in connection. Uh,
0: you're saying specifically because of what's going on, meaning you, know, you don't have your, your work and your regular like now you're going, there with him.
2: I'm home with while
0: him. he's through this phase of life.
2: Exactly. I'm so I'm very grateful for that opportunity, while at the same time I'm keeping that vision that what I want out of this is a connected world. That all of us are gonna be so hungry. To be in deep connection, that we will want to learn and practice. Yeah,
0: I, see. I mean, we're seeing some of that, right? The lens some of us are going for connection and what we're trying to do. Exactly. The other night, I had a a conversation with a few friends on Zoom, and it was like you know a two and a half hour conversation at night. Their husband and wife, and Freddie and I, and yeah, you know, that that was really. It was really cool. It was really neat yeah. just to sit there and talk. And it allowed for a, probably a, a more real conversation and connection than had we gone out to dinner with the food, in person, with the, our phones. The distractions. Right? Now there's no distraction because we've been distracted by our phone for so long and by our technology. Yeah. And now we're using the technology to speak yeah. to the people. There's nothing to distract.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'll weigh in am I, from my perspective on the contrary without even hesitation, without even thinking about it, I've gone into, into overdrive um, and feel like my whole life I've been trained for a moment like this. How would you so, explain your purpose
0: and mission if you had to say it?
1: I will, I will. So my purpose and mission, which is always a driving force and, and I jump out of bed every morning excited, has taken on, I can't even, you know, it's, it's, it's on steroids now. <laughs> it's that completely accelerated. I've always seen my mission as being one of, I could say similar to how Haiti put it, which is connection of souls. But I always felt like it was like helping people, helping everyone, helping myself, unblock the different impediments that don't allow us to see the truth of ourselves and the truth of each other, and the truth of our destinies. That how this material world can be so distracting and help people wake up, obviously, through uh, love and kindness, not through brute strength. So to me, when I see this, I feel like uh, on the front lines where people are falling, and some are weakened. And we, my job, my mission, I feel everyone's mission, but I definitely feel mine is, is to boost morale, to do everything possible to create empowering resources. I've been literally creating content I created this thing called the Daily Spiritual Antidote, a three-minute video every day that just helps people focus on their inner lives, which counters all the news going out on the outer lives. I am doing now something which is literally, you know, my office is beckoning for me to approve, which is a 15-step soulful and musical journey to healing and transformation through the Seder. To me, Passover is like couldn't have come at a better time. Most people see Passover as, 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 as a problem. I see it as the tools for emancipation. You know, Mitzrayim means constraints and fears and concerns and uncertainties and unknowns and health issues. And we now can do a Seder, I believe, like Manishtana. How is this night different? It's not just, I think, how is this year different than all the years? I don't think there's ever been a Passover like this. So I really, and this is like coming almost from my gut. It's not like I sit down, okay, let's make a plan for the day. I just feel like when you're on the front lines, you know you, there's, there's, there's blood everywhere, God forbid, in a certain way, and we just this is the time you, not, you use now, the when?
0: expression you use the expression fallen and weakened, but I got the sense that you weren't talking about the ones who have physically fallen.
1: I mean both first of all, let's not cannot deny a family the, the devastation of a father dying, they don't even know why he died, no one's in the hospital or a mother. So there is the physical falling. Let's not to, to minimize that. But yes, the psychological, emotional. I think people are right now in shock. You know that first stage of trauma? Shock. They can't even cry. They can't even wrap their head around. Everyone's in shock. Survival mode. Do I need food? What's going to be tomorrow? There's that. There's that I feel like a collective. And the exponential effect that everyone sees everything on television, on the internet, I think is, is uh, so deeply overwhelming. So we can't focus on that. We have to focus on what can we say to people to, to get their spirits alive, because you're going to need it more than ever. You're going to need your soul and its energy and its passion more than ever now. The next few weeks, hopefully this thing will be over, but whatever time it lasts, you're going to need your inner resources big time. So I feel my mission is to do everything possible to bolster, let's call it the psychological, emotional, and spiritual immunity of people. And uh, I, I mean, that's why we're here. Why we're we doing this uh, this conference, this uh, webinar. Yeah. And I, I want to encourage everyone out there. I want to just say, you're not a victim. You can you can choose to be a victim. You're not a victim. You can dig deep, dig deeper, find friends, do something positive. I find that people who are remaining sane nowadays are not focusing on themselves and what's going to be. They're focusing on service. How can I help others? Who can who can use a phone call? who can use a package of food. Obviously, following all the health guidelines. And serving. Serving, more love, more courage. Just bring the the best, the strength the strength that that we have within us. Do not, you know, you stop behaving like a victim, you become a victim. And that's some, to me, that's unacceptable. That's like, that's surrender to the wrong surrender. Surrender to the opposite side. And I can't say this enough. I just feel that this is like, if anybody take away message, that to me is like, Number
0: one. I like to think it'll have a physical impact also because I know for myself, I mean, I, I struggled with anxiety for years and years and years. And then um, through a lot of work, I don't it wasn't just this realization, but I think the final realization for me was that if I have something and I'm worried about it, then I don't have it. So I'm done. Like me, for example, like I worried a lot about losing money. And one of the ways I had a, a couple of break-ins at our, at our office and I, I saw the video footage and everything else. And for years, like one of my fears was around security, so what I kept doing was putting more elaborate security systems in and overnight security guards and every, everything else under the sun to get this sense of security that we've broken in. And then one day I said, I, it's not my stuff, it's not my warehouse. If I'm constantly worried about losing it, I don't even need it. If you can take it and take the fear also, great. And then there was a certain freedom that allowed me to step into but what But the reason I bring that up is because I noticed myself getting a lot more sick when that, when that happened, I would crash. And whether it was shingles or a cold or a virus, there were more things that I had much. I had much more illness when I was dealing with anxiety on a more regular basis. And thankfully, now I can say it's been 12 to 18 months since my last panic attack. And I would. I'm, I'm not saying I'm immune to the virus. Most likely not. But what I'm saying is that I imagine my immune system is better off because of the fact that I'm not dealing with as much as as much anxiety. So I would think you're. Your war that you're waging is not just a spiritual one to get people's heads in the right place, but it's quite a physical one, not to to have a weakened immune system from fear and anxiety.
1: I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I really believe this may be the defining event of our lives and um, because of its global nature and its impact on people in so many ways. And we want to be able to look back at 2020 and say, um, 2020 vision, interesting Mm -hmm. irony. it's it's anything but vision no one no one predicted this one um and uh, look back and say you know what to tell our children our grandchildren that we turned this world into a better place into a real awakening as a result i think
2: the metaphor it's not a war we're waging but rather an opportunity we're embracing so i I
1: meant war in a positive way i meant right right you Uh, want to know something
0: interesting haiti and this is i mentioned this to you when you said it haiti was um throughout the two days that I spent with her both times, she, her, her focus on language was um, like, it was just so careful anytime we used words. So I remember the, the one example I have of that is Freddie um, is Haiti asked at the end of the first two days together. She said, what did you, what, what did you think about what I did? What this, the space, she talks about the space we create and, I said it was very non-judgmental, and said, "Could you say that in the language of abundance?" And it was really hard for me to find word, words like non-judgmental. It was like accepting. I don't know, right? I remember searching for words. But what what I did tell her at the time, after she reminded us a few times, like stay in the language of abundance, was that the Rebbe also had this fanaticism about language, right? He would call a hospital Beit Rofim, oh, not Beit Cholim. Yeah.
2: Very important, because it is the opportunity to be of service, to, to share who you are as a human. So it's not a war raging, but rather truly an opportunity to rise up.
1: I, I didn't up. say it in a macho, <laughs> masculine way. I <laughs> meant it in the verse of the prophet that says that it's a war not of arms and armies and ammunition. It's a war of spirit. So I meant war as the sense of urgency in that sense there's right. a, a, a focus and urgency but I, the point well but what what did you get point.
0: what did you get from the from the from the rebbe's fanaticism with that it was just i remember telling uh, I, I find telling
1: it to, I, I i i believe i'm a i try to be a precision like surgical precision with words because every word counts and every nuance counts yeah. i see my, i'm a writer i'm a speaker and I'm very, very careful. As, as a matter of fact, the word war did not come lightly. I thought about it because mm-hmm. I wanted, I think that people realize that there is a time you have to rise, you have to be mobilized. So let's not, I understand war has many negative connotations, but it's, it's the mobilization, it's the sense of urgency. That's not, oh, we're just hanging around and we'll see what happens. No, there's that uh, element, you know, when- hey,
0: Haiti, H- hey, if I recall, not to challenge you too hard, but if I recall when in your book on- where you write about your journey overcoming or dealing with um breast cancer, cancer. Breast
2: cancer.
0: you you called your team the boob, brigade. the boob brigade right a brigade has a war terminology and a it's war suggestion
2: true. you're right it was you know what it was yumi's name and i don't know would i have found a different one but you're I, right brigade.
1: i, I, I want to so say very i'm very careful with words but sometimes there's nothing wrong with using a word and especially if you say it in the right spirit but listen, yeah. we understand, listen, words, are, words matter, 100%. I, I can tell you as a communicator that 80% of the job is to find the words that what not to say because it evokes stereotypes and right. preconceived prejudices and notions, 100%. Right. Right.
0: So one, one of the first right. Right. lessons, I, I can tell you, Rabbi Simmon, is that every time I leave, and I hope the listeners got that as well, but every time I leave a phone call with you, I've left with that feeling, right? So you're conveying it properly right? Then using words or words yeah. and energy is that I need to do something and I need to do more during this period, right? After the event we did last week, I got a lot of messages from people and said, what's the next one you're going to do? What's the next one? And I didn't have an idea. So we have and, to have a planned phone call. <laughs> we have to have something. If I feel it slipping, if I feel it slipping, I'll call you. And I hope the audience got that as well. And I wrap it up. It's that that, that's what I admire so much about both you and why I thought a conversation with the three of us would flow so nicely, is that youthful energy.
1: The audience should know that everyone can do something proactive and on the offense. Thank you. Haiti. last words?
2: Thank you. I'm very honored to have met you, Rabbi Simon, and I'm very glad you organized this, and let's continue to put good stuff out there.
0: Thank you. thank you so much, Heidi. I was really excited. When I, when I asked you on Friday, I was really excited that you, uh, I said,
2: that, you yes. that
0: you agreed. and yeah, Absolutely. Thank you so much. Happy Absolutely. Passover. Happy thank, Passover you.
1: thank you, Heidi. It's an honor to meet you. And let our synergy bring the light that needs to eradicate all the negative and only
2: bring Amen. the positive. Amen. Amen. I loved being with you. And thank you for everything. Thank,
0: thank you, Heidi. Happy I know this time. is short. You're used to like eight or nine hours of intense session. So I'm sorry we have to cut it so short, Eddie.
1: <laughs> as as Winston yes. Churchill said, when he wrote a long letter, he said, I apologize. I didn't have time to write a shorter letter.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Bye everybody. And thanks everyone for hanging out with us, spending a couple hours. God
1: bless you all. God bless
3: you. Bye. Bye bye.